Hello and welcome back to Just Get A Real Job podcast. I'm of course your host, Jamie McKinley, and I did promise we'd return in January. And we're doing it just on the 31st, so technically still January, the very last of it. But welcome back to the podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for coming back and listening. If this is your first time as well, thank you very much. It's so good to be back doing this again. It's been really nice to have a little bit of a break and just recuperate and have some time out. But I've missed this and it's it's good to be back. Got a nice shiny new microphone, which I'm using for these intros as well. I'm already thinking it's sounding better, so I hope you agree. And we got a really, really exciting lineup coming up. I've been recording some great conversations behind the scenes. Really excited to start putting them out. Starting with today's brilliant episode, which is with award-winning composer and sound designer, Nicola T. Chong. Nicola was full of energy and lots and lots of inspiring words. A really, really enjoyable and positive conversation to have. It was one of those ones you record and you go away feeling quite like chuffed and happy to be, you know, part of an industry with people like her working in it and she had lots of wisdom and good advice to share we spoke about her growing up in Hong Kong we spoke about her sound design we spoke about how she juggles a variety of different skills as a composer as a performer Nicola's also currently playing keys and percussion in a show called Fantastically Great Women Who Changed the World which is on tour at the moment there's links to that in the show notes so have a look at when that is on tour and where about in the UK it is we get into it a bit more in today's episode it's full of great advice and yeah it's loads and loads of stuff to get from this episode even if you necessarily don't work in sound design or in being a composer etc even if you're just interested in the creative industries or want a good listen I think this one will do it for you as always we are an independent podcast and you know it's getting increasingly harder to sort of match some of the podcasts that have got a lot a lot of money a lot a lot I don't know why I said a lot a lot that sounds really unnatural anyway it's really hard to sort of match the podcasts that have got a lot of money behind them or are sort of studio backed I mean some of the content they're putting out is top quality but I still think even without money and without lots of time and backing you can still make great stuff and I'm really proud of the conversations we have on here so I'm very grateful to everyone that tunes in and listens still but any support you can give us is greatly appreciated so if you enjoy today's episode or have enjoyed any of the 125 episodes we put out please share them send them to people you know post about them online and just word of mouth is so important in growing this podcast organically and we're very grateful for it we also have a patreon which there's links to in the show notes as well so if you for the price of a cup of coffee or the price of a pint want to just support the podcast every month then we'd be greatly appreciated for that but anyway that is enough waffle from me in the new year welcome back to the podcast i'm so thrilled to be doing this again and without much further ado i hope you enjoy episode 125 Nicola, how are you? Lovely to see you this afternoon. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I know you've just been released from a rehearsal to come and speak to us, so we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on Just Get A Real Job. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really good, thank you. It's been a nice rehearsal. We had a little run today. So that's been really useful and really informative and nice to get a chance to run the music. Yes, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I was saying to you off air that I've got like some annual leave from work this week, so I'm sort of using today as an opportunity to record some podcasts back to back. So you're number two of three today from my little interviews, so 
I've just done a lovely one before this and it's really nice because a lot of time I record this podcast as my listeners will know after work in the evening and you're usually a bit tired and like it's still fun to do but it's much nicer having a whole day where I feel relaxed I've got energy and yeah no it's, it's a real treat so it's great to be here oh bless you no rest for the wicked <laughs> never well I'll use the actual annual leave later in the week to actually have some time out but for now and we're here but no this okay. gives, this gives me energy to be honest so no it's all good but Nicola like you're currently playing sort of keys and percussion for a show called Fantastic Great Women Who Changed the World and also you're a sound designer and a composer an award-winning one in fact so you've got quite a lot of hats and things to talk to us about today but you just want to for the listeners quickly introduce yourself sure hi hello everyone my name's Nicola I am a a composer, sound designer, and a performer, and occasional musical director. I think succinctly, I'm a theatre musician. I've been involved in many stages of how to deliver a sound and musical language and performance to an audience, from conception, you know, from writing music to delivery as a performer. So that's me. I grew up in Hong Kong, and I've been based in the UK for the past nine years, and have worked in the theatre industry for about say six years, and. I've been loving every moment of it. Every day is very different, which is which brings me a lot of joy, really. Mm. I think sometimes I'm headed to my sound design gig after this, so it's it's really it's really quite you know an eventful day. Every day is a big day, which is which is really exciting, really. Mm. Yeah. We're both cramming everything in. Both you know we're juggling everything. It's, it's, yeah, it's what, it's what this industry is like, isn't it? <laughs> I know, you sort of, I go, why did you do cardio anyway? Because my heart rate's always just beating. My heart's always just going, <laughs> so I don't even know. I know. To... I've got one of these bits, bits now and I wore it on, we did a live podcast today, a few of them at the Edinburgh Fringe this year and I was wearing it on stage. And if it was like, when I got off stage, it was like saying that I'd done like a times four workout or something for my heart oh. rate. It was like so <laughs> high up. I was like, this is actually quite crazy to see it measured. Like, so that's quite scary. I've definitely not done any exercise today, but it thought I had by a lot. So yeah, I think that must be like that a lot of the days, especially when you're on stage for sure yeah I think you come um, off stage and you go what just happened what what and you just go oof and your heart rate just slows down <laughs> and you go wow that was exciting wasn't it yeah no for sure well Nicola I've got there's lots for us to talk about today of course I'm mm. really interested in sort of you growing up in Hong Kong and how that's affected your sort of creative career and influenced you as a creative person and stuff as well of course doing all these various jobs there's lots to talk about but let's sort of start with your earliest creative memory. So do you remember a moment where you kind of were like, oh, this is interesting. I, I, I could see myself potentially doing this in the future. Yes. One of my earliest creative memories. I don't think I... So I didn't set out in my life to want to work in theatre. I sort of wanted to... I thought I'd be working in film. But what ended up happening, some of the creative memories were all centred around the living room when I would programme a show for my family and make them sit through it. You know, sit through 30 minutes of me mm. finding things to do, reading a poem from a book, doing a little routine, making my brother do a routine. And very presentational. And I also remember my grandmother teaching me how to play percussion rhythms on a mm. sofa. And those are really, really, I think, latent memories, which made me realize that I really enjoy it and probably have a knack for it. Yeah. And also writing music for films that my classmates put together and this is probably when we were all 15 and 16 and you made mm. films on whatever was whatever software was around then and it was you know I used I think it was a finale so for audiences who may not have heard of finale finale is a musical notation software but if you think about it 20 years ago it was quite the sound packages were quite electronic and so listening to the music now that you made years and years ago you go oh this is very <laughs> but I think that it's it's it shows an inkling and a bit of spark there that I really, really remember it, it, it had for me and 
I've sort of carried ever since, hopefully. Oh, amazing, amazing. Um, and the sort of next part of this question is kind of what we I mentioned at the start, but it's about how where you're from has influenced mm. you as a creative. And you were talking about growing up in Hong Kong and stuff. So how has that influenced you as a creative? And you're the first guest we'd had on from Hong Kong as well. Amazing. So that's a podcast first. Podcast first. I think as a composer, and this is quite a specific kind of response, actually. So I have often been asked to do shows in the UK, which are sets in Hong Kong or set in China, and then to write music for it. And I think growing up in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong used to be a British colony, but mm-hmm. but then my grandmother was a Cantonese, sang Cantonese opera, and you go to, you'd be taxi, and then in the radio, they play traditional Cantonese music. And my mom and dad listen to a lot of canto pop, which is Cantonese pop music. So there is a type of vocal melody and a type of rhythm and a type of orchestration that you grew up with you know and then I was and I had received western classical music training so I was I'm a classically trained percussionist and pianist and so in a roundabout way of answering that question I think when I write music for shows set in Hong Kong I think I am able to really blend those two musical sonic textures together in a interesting Mm. way There, there are versions of it and I've heard on stage where they go, oh, this is remotely Chinese. This is remotely East Asian. We put it in there. And you can really, really tell when it's not done really tastefully. And I think growing in Hong Kong amidst the sonic palette of, of Cantonese opera, of canto pop, but then playing a bit of, you know, Beethoven mm. and Shostakovich and, and Ramananov really influenced the way I write for those specific shows. And I would like to think that it does review like that on stage. I think as well, growing up in Hong Kong, in my school, we used to participate in this competition, which is an inter- inter-school competition, and it's very competitive. And kids would be able to skip class to just practice, and I'd practice one song, one piece of music, say, on the marimba, one piece of music on the piano, mm. and represent my school to in this competition that it was sometime in, I think, April or May, and happened every year, and every school sent students there to compete, and you would want to get as many trophies and as many as many flags. So it's like the Olympics, but, you know, a very, very smaller scale in music, and imagine teenagers doing it. And I think having to do this competition quite a lot makes me a very disciplined musician. Mm. I think there's a certain discipline in the way I play, the way I practice, the way I do sound design, the way I compose, the way I organize my life that I think I would attribute to being, to having just had that rigor. I used to be able to, they used to take me out of class and be like, okay, I have to do this. And I go, okay, okay. And I practice it for hours and hours and then. So that's something that's been interesting. I'm, I'm, there's neither, it's quite a neutral statement. There's neither anything good or bad about it, but I think it's influenced the, the way I approach music and approach discipline and approach what I need to eventually deliver to people yeah no that's that's really interesting I'm also kind of curious what's the sort of culture for the arts like in Hong Kong compared mm. to, compared to somewhere like the UK like having lived having lived and sort of been involved in both there are a couple of ways to answer, um, a couple of facets to this question I think so I've left Hong Kong for 12 years now I haven't lived, I haven't lived in Hong Kong for the, sorry, actually 13 years so I can't really speak to what the landscape is quite like now I remember growing up I remember watching a lot of imported shows so I was mm. watching Cats I remember watching Mamma Mia in a very huge auditorium so a lot of touring companies find a home in Hong Kong I my understanding is locally local shows or fringe shows don't get that much traction and don't get, you know say for example in the UK or in London an average fringe show might get a three-week run in Hong Kong you would get probably a lot less and mm. um, a lot less resources and there are certain political conditions in Hong Kong now that make it even more difficult I imagine and then there's also a interesting sort of disconnect between Cantonese opera listeners or, or listeners of traditional Chinese music which Sometimes people think, oh, it's a bit more old and more traditional, which is not mm. true because it's actually really, it's, fa- it's, it's such an interesting form, an interesting sound. Mm. And then there's the, you know, the classical music, that is the high art. And I remember growing up having 
I think being in the cultural landscape where Western classical music was considered just high art or more aspirational than a lot of the other musics that my family yeah. would play, which is fascinating. And now sort of, you know, working in the UK and looking back, you can really see how that's influenced my career choices, influenced the instruments I play. And that is a product of circumstance. Yes, that's how growing up in Hong Kong was like for me personally. Music is such a big, a lot of my friends and my classmates would play piano and viola, but they would, they just stop. Once you hit grade eight exams, you just sort of stop playing mm. because it was it was quite achievement based. Right, right. Yeah, but I mean, there's a burgeoning jazz scene in Hong Kong. There are more off the road, off the beaten track venues that you, so if you really look for it, you can find some kind of really cool basement mm. jazz bars, you know, in old prisons and things like that that have popped up and I think are very interesting and do really interesting work. But it's a small the city than London in terms of I think people who work in the arts and so everybody knows each other mm. just you know yeah yes yeah, so, so, what else was that yeah no that was a, thank you so much for answering all that in mm. such detail it's really interesting I just last sort of question on this sort of topic but do you were talking about how like it's almost quite like achievement orientated for music yes. and stuff so was that sort of the educational way of it like everyone got access to sort of play this stuff but it was more based in like just getting a qualification for it as opposed to the love of doing it and maybe simplifying that too much as well I so I mean so sort of I I just recall seeing a lot of my classmates and friends playing being amazing at the instruments but then stopping of stopping lessons after they've attained a certain kind mm. of qualification but at the same time I don't think all of us everybody had access to it I I grew up in a family that I was very lucky to have access to instruments but in Hong Kong at the same time I don't think a lot of people necessarily have access to instruments and even the competition sometimes I'm thinking back my school was able to afford better instruments and so therefore at this music yeah. competition we just did better because our instruments were better but you know a lot of other schools participating would not have necessarily the same quality of it so mm. they're stratified it's a very interesting way of I suppose to an extent maybe emphasizing qualification I find the exam structure quite interesting because those exams say for example grade 8 piano the ABRSM Royal College exams you would play three pieces of music and then you do your scales and then yeah. you do them do all these really well and you sight read really well then you attain grade 8 which I think now in my point of my life, I don't think fundamentally makes you a better or good musician because if you can play three things and play a few things really well, you're just a very good rote learner. Mm. I find I am interested in people who are musicians who come to an instrument and just are themselves. I'm interested mm. in people who go up to a piano and play things and figure things out by ear. And I think that's a more interesting way of a more interesting form of musicality than is qualification. I'm not saying that being technical proficiency doesn't make anybody a good musician, but I'm interested in the other other side of it as well. Yeah, well, it's like that famous song of the Beatles couldn't read music or something, right? Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like that, and I, you know, it, it made me think back to being in primary school in the UK and in Scotland particularly. But like, I remember what happened. I think we're in what we call it in Scotland primary three, which mm. I think I don't, I can't remember what age you'll be like nine or something. They came into class. And they tested everyone. How musical are you? I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic, and I love music. I can sing, but I can't play anything really well. I could play a tiny bit. I'm not very. It's not my talent, right? But the way they sort of assessed that, they decided who would get to do some tuition and music stuff, and who wouldn't. And of course, like some kids like myself, you know, they're not going to screen very well in a test. But that's not, it. Feels unfair that I didn't get even the chance to learn or play around on some instruments because I think I'd still have really enjoyed it. I'm not saying I would be very good at like piano or whatever, but I think that. Again, what you're saying, music for the sake of music and for the love of it, I think everyone should 
get the chance to do so it's just really interesting i hadn't thought about that for a long time but yeah i think that's quite bad actually and now i think music gestion is not even an option for a lot of kids at all because of budget cuts in a lot of schools in the uk so it's all really interesting yeah i work with some young companies and young people and often young people come and say oh yeah you know this is the, this is the one thing i'm doing this summer that is music related because they've cut it in schools because not enough people join it or there's the budget mm. them, which is yeah which is a massive shame and yeah, that we're losing so much talent. And mm. you think about it sometimes the most, one of the, some of the most latent things that we remember or that, that most, most enduring cultural things are musical forms and theatre forms and books and poetry. They endure, they truly endure. And I don't find that particular, you can't see other things endure like that or touch people like that. And music is inherently is so universal and as, 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 yeah. as banal and as, as, as simple as that sounds, it really is. Because I I think that is you could play something in your own way and you can still affect people mm. in that way. You know, the, I think that, it, that one of the the, sim, the more I've started to do or practice music in as a career, the more simple is useful. You know, simple gets the message across. Simple gets and you've got mm. a five note tune that just does it. Often when you do things too complex, it doesn't actually say very much. You can say you can say you can see, there's a lot more noise in there. Yeah, I'm sorry to hit that. No, I mean, listen, I, as I say, I was never a career that I would have, you know, had. But like, I think there's, I just think I'm, it's not really about me. It's more just I think it's a systemic failure f- from the education system. I mean, the way we teach, I've talked about this so much on this podcast, the listeners are probably bored of me saying it, but mm. I just think the way that we use the creative subjects in education in this country, it's just all wrong. And we could get a lot more talent out of people that don't even want to have a career in this industry for other industries if we utilize it better. But that's, you know, moving on to sort of a more fun question for you. Do you have a favorite word and phrase from growing up in Hong Kong? Yes, I do. In Cantonese is yafan, feng sun, which means may the wind be in your sails always. Mm, that's great. And I really like that phrase because I feel like it's a nice way to, it's a nice well wish. I, I put that in all the cards that I write, whether it's a congratulatory card, a birthday it. card. And yeah, that's, you know, have to catch the wind in your sails. I think opportunities come, we just have to latch onto it. That's part of it. But also it's a blessing. May you just carry, just carry forward. That's one of them. My favorite things mm. I learned. That's a lovely one. I'm going to be really cheeky as well since you've lived in the UK for a number of years. But is there a word that you've picked up from from moving over here that you really like? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I mean I find it for you later. Apparently there, there's a there's a way of saying that you're very tired, but then you can. Oh, I don't know. I don't know, Jamie. People just keep telling me I'm tired all the time. You know, everybody's like, how are you? I'm tired. How are you? I'm tired. I'm like, maybe, maybe it's I'm tired. Everything is, everybody just feels a bit tired. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty guilty for that. I'm like, oh, I'm tired. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's a mindset thing. And maybe we are all, we're all overworked and tired. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have a favorite phrase? I don't, I don't really quite know. Um, yeah. I mean, I was, I've wondered for a long time if I should change this question because phrases and words are slightly different because they're both two different things almost. Mm. I've got loads of like Scottish words I like like dreekit is a Scottish word which means like wet and minging you know when the weather's just a bit horrible yeah. it's like dreekit I just love the way it sounds yeah there's loads of Scottish words I quite like I, but although now I'm on the spot I'm like what, what are they you know what I, mean? I feel I feel like they might just I don't think it's a as perhaps English isn't a language yeah you know a Cantonese for example that we do mm. four character phrases like yeah fine function right where they wouldn't be in yourself it's just such a it's a locked mm. thing yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe I had to use so many English words to to explain that one particular thing yeah yeah no language is really interesting I just really like this little question because I think it's mm. quite there's such a what I like is that it shows how there's such a variety of guests on this podcast and everyone usually has a different answer there's probably been a few that have been similar 
said a little bit. I think it's quite rare. Yeah. yeah. I'll well, have to think about that. Get back to you. I think I recently <laughs> read, read somewhere that, there, that, that you can use a phrase to describe how tired you are, but then the phrase is related to alcohol. And I just thought it was really funny. And I'll find it for you in a bit. <laughs> no, that's great. I wanted to start talking about your first steps into the sort of career you have now. So obviously, you were saying in school, you played like instruments really well and percussion and keys and stuff. But when did you sort of first realize you were going to become a sound designer? Because you were saying to me off air as well that you did a bit of economics briefly as well and then changed again so how did that all come about sure I grew up listening wanted to be a film music composer and I remember still you know playing LimeWire hello LimeWire downloading Star Wars soundtracks on LimeWire and really finding the creative process really interesting really enjoyed it and when I moved to the UK actually I I went to uni before I moved to the UK and studied economics and still did a lot of theatre things on the side and just didn't seem to be able to not do music so I was performing a lot I was writing bits and bobs and then when I moved to the UK I had a desk job for a bit and I was working for a music company And then I auditioned for a show called Stomp. The reason why I moved to the UK actually was because when I was in Hong Kong, my percussion teacher showed me a video of Stomp, which is the show with broomsticks. And at that time at seven, when you see somebody on stage with a broomstick, you know, all sweaty and shouting, you're like, oh, that's the coolest thing I could possibly do in your life. And you go, I want to do that for the rest of my life. And so I started off in Stomp and then because that was mainly an evening thing and I was at swing. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to pursue my my other dream of wanting to be a film composer. And since I was working in theatre at the time anyway as a performer, it was just easy mm. to segue into theatre. I called myself a sound designer before I ever knew what it was, which is sort of the rather chaotic answer. The chaotic answer is that I called myself a sound designer before I knew what it was. And now I realise I really, I just, I've known what it was all along. So sound designers, the, the technical bit about a theatre sound designer, there's so many technical parts to it. You have to, the microphones, the software kit, the mixing desk, but fundamentally, sound design is how can you utilize the language of sound and how does the language of sound and units of sound and silence to tell a story, right? And you can do that through making a musical really well. You can do that through, for example, you've got a musical Les on stage and you've got all these characters and all the band in the orchestra. How do you position these different sound sources in the auditorium for the audience in a very useful way? And how do you add effects? That's design, but that's using sound as a, as a storytelling technique. Or the other way where you, you know, more content-based sound design, which is what I do. So I make sound effects and I make soundscapes that tell stories, that help stories and help plays move along. That fundamentally is, again, using a drone or using a sound of someone falling over backwards or using a sound of a, I don't know, a piano reversed. That tells a story too. So how I got into it was I called myself chaotically a sound designer and I started doing a lot of fringe and pub gigs. I said, yeah, I'm a sound designer. And they go, okay, fine. And with those particular gigs, what happens is because they are such small scale, you expect to do everything. And actually, I think I learned a lot. I learned how to use new software then on the spot. And just sort of worked my, just kept working. And here I am now doing, it's about sound design and performing. That's the chaotic answer is I caught myself that. But I think, I think artists and composers, and I think women and women of colour find it really hard to call themselves something to acknowledge the fact that they are. And that's yeah. one of the most difficult bits is that you have, just have to call yourself that. You know, I am a performer. I am a composer. You, know, you are a musician. You are a podcast host. You, know, you, are, you just are. But it's, mm. it's sometimes, ironically, it takes somebody to tell you that, that you that you belong. No, I think that's really interesting because there's also that imposter syndrome always mm. comes with like how you define your role and stuff. Because sometimes I'm like, well, before... 
I was a properly a script editor. I was like, am I allowed to call myself a script editor? Like, am I allowed to call myself a podcast? Uh, does it count to be a podcast host when it's not like a massive podcast that, are, like, you know, has millions and millions of... Do you know what I mean? So I think there's always that in the background of your brain in this industry. Yeah, and who defines that and who gets to... Who gets, who gets to qualify, give you the stamp of approval? Mm. Yeah, and who gets to define your role and who... I suppose just, like, where's your worth coming from? I think it's important because sometimes if you... The, 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 definition, the definition of that feels so external. Mm. I also wanted to pick up on something you were just saying in, in your last point as well, but you're saying like it's even harder for like women of colour and stuff mm. to like feel like you can have that ownership. But how have you found like your career so far and how's how much has that been influenced by that fact? And like do you think the industry has become better at representation and inclusion or do you think there's still a lot of work to do and stuff? That's a really good question. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I think every step matters and counts i think sometimes i don't feel like i can make a mistake because a mistake that i make tends to in my head count as a mistake that my community makes so yeah it's, it's just more it's just you just i think carry something even slightly more external on every job you do but on the other side of that is the community is so strong that i think there's a question coming up later which, which is about you know what 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 kind of advice and I just I think I found my tribe I found my community in the East Asian theatre making community in the UK and then they will back you up you know we're in WhatsApp groups that we talk to mm. each other about you, you ask questions does this feel like this and they go yes this doesn't actually feel like this this is actually in the, inappropriate or wrong and in my career I've done several jobs where I felt like my identity or the way I look has been used for a reason that was particularly healthy or healthy representation and I've also been in projects where the representation is really healthy and really useful so it works both ways. I think it is, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very broad, broader question. I think the landscape is really improving. I think yeah. evidently, objectively speaking, it is so much better than it was 10 years ago. And I can only hope for it to keep getting better. And I think every step that people take towards positive representation is a good one. Because often, you know, you're not allowed to fail. You feel like you're not allowed to fail, but you've not even given that chance. To, you might succeed. Does, it, does mm. that make sense? Like you might even succeed, but you're not even given a chance and you can't even fail. Yeah. That's how must be a lot of pressure, like, to carry around, though, to feel like you can't make a mistake because you're letting down, like, if you make a mistake, then you feel like the whole community that you represent has made a mistake. That, that's not fair either because that's also not true, but it feels like that's so hard to, like, carry that around. I feel like maybe I put that on myself, but I can't. I don't think I'm the only one who feels like feels like that. No, for sure. Yeah. I think that's a. Call. I think a lot of people I've spoke to have said similar things, and I think mm. it, I think it's really sad. I, I I just feel like we need to find a way to make sure that's not the case. But it, it evidently, is there is some truth in that, and it's it's not good. Yeah, having more, just so you're not the only one who because people people will ascribe certain things. They go, oh yeah, because you look yeah, and I unconscious bias and these things. I mean, everybody carries along some of that, and it's a product of a lot of us, part of institution, part of society, part of the way we grew up. I think yeah, and there are many many ways around it. One of which is just I think it's just making sure that more people see themselves, yeah. each other, and in the industry that they work in, so they can feel like they're not alone. Mm. I think isolation and loneliness tends to be one of the most biggest factors in making people go, oh, I'm the only one, so I have to do this, I have to do that, and you're not, and yeah. Yeah, and some, you know, I, I, some, I'm not afforded the same mistakes, I think, sometimes that other people are. Yeah, and that's just the way it is. We did ask me, so one thing about growing in Hong Kong, Hong Kong is relatively more homogenous than the UK, than London, for example. And I think I never really clocked what my identity was until I moved to the UK. So when I was growing in Hong Kong, I was like, you know, I was just a lot of things that I don't have to really think about. And then now you carry, there is a story, you know, people 
And the first person yeah, one of the first jobs I ever did was telling a story of someone who grew up in a takeaway. Mm. Because they would just, people would just put that on you. And this is what, six years ago? So yeah, they would distort, you inherit something. But in the inheritance of it, I think the way I'm looking at it now is also the ability to take, to take part of a narrative. Whereas yeah. in the past, it felt like you, people, you know, in they will, they ascribe a certain narrative on you. They ascribe a certain, because that's all they know, because that's what, all they've grown up with. That's because in the 70s and 80s and 90s, the only exposure they have to any, East Asian family or Chinese looking family was the story of a takeaway and, and, and all these kind of all that jazz. And then whilst there is a version of it where you go, I'm taking on this story that's not even mine because I didn't grow up remotely, anything like that. There is also a power in being somebody with a community of supporters who can go, yeah, but can you make something different or take control of a narrative? I think that's more empowering. And I think it's it's I think there is more and more space now for that, and more and more space for people to see different people who look like them do different things in the industry yeah um, for sure yeah like the, the, the fantastic great we want to change the world for example it's one of the most interesting shows i've ever been in as a performer and so is stop because it shows where oh, I, I don't know who listens to this podcast but people who look like me often get cast in the saigon or get cast in the king and i which tend to be shows with quite a you know they've got it's certain storyline that presents a white saviorship thing and it's not it's not there's no control there's no thing narrative or no agency. The characters who look like me don't have a particular agency to subvert a lot of the mm. narratives put upon them. Whereas as a performer, I think in shows like this, I've had people who, I remember in Norwich, there's this little girl in, uh, who popped up with school and she was eight. And she saw me on stage and she was eight and she kept waving and I had to break formation to wave back because I think maybe for the first time in her life, she saw somebody who looks like her doing something that she wanted to do. Or I've had people who watch the show have, yeah. So she and her younger sister have, two lesbian mums and she and her sister I think are adopted from from China I believe and they still DM me and we and I send the family books and we talk about identities and talk about cultures and we talk about communities because their mums are white and the daughters are, are East Asian and I think it's important I think it shows like this that bring connections to mm. London, London is multicultural I think there's London just there's also easy access to a lot of this information and this kind of conversation versus when you tour and you start building these connections it's it's all very positive things and i want to see more and i think he's a step in the right direction that's been a very long response no it's it's, <laughs> it's but listen it's it's important and what you're saying is really interesting and quite inspiring i'm sure there'll be people listening that, are, that this chimes with for people listening that don't know about this stuff and i might be like oh okay i never thought about it like that that's really important and you, you know as you're saying about all that pressure i think you should also be really pleased pleased with yourself because you've been an inspiration for probably a lot of people as well from sort of taking that chance and from doing what you're doing at the moment and it's not you know it's not easy and as you just said there's a lot of pressure there but no it's great that you're sort of forging a career in this and you know coming on podcasts to speak about it as well no bless you thank you that's very kind jamie i've had a lot of help too i think we all stand on each other's we all stand on each other's shoulders i think that's Mm. the thing you you, you just know yeah you have to and you and you only become someone else's shoulders to stand on it's all part of the thing for sure for sure I, I thought it would be useful for you. I just want to ask if you would sort of break down the different roles that you kind of have done. So firstly, if you could sort of tell us what a sound designer does and what the day-to-day role of being a sound designer is, and then similarly for being a composer, etc. Sure. So the hats I wear, sound designer, 
composer, sort of, I'll, I'll just I'll lump them into one thing because that's sort of my roles in a lot of projects. And then I'll also talk about being a performer. So as a sound designer composer, we are attached to projects to deliver a musical and sort of sonic soundscape to tell, tell a story. I, mm. I work on a lot of plays. So I recently worked on a show called for Black Boys, so I've considered suicide when the hue gets too heavy. And then I'm also the soundscape designer for My Neighbor Totoro. And for that, you know, a day, a day is looking at the script going, highlighting what sound effects needed, what's the design language, because if yeah. there's some shows where you need, this is pure naturalism, right? That you're outside, you've got birds, you're inside, you've got a fridge, so you get the fridge hums, mm. the telephone rings, very naturalistic. But there's also other shows where it's all musical, you know, your piano note or a double bass note could be a symbol and a metaphor for an mm. evil character or a love interest. And there's finding what that what those rules are and then operating within those rules. I sometimes have to write, uh, submit a rig plan and that's where I want to put my speakers. I record people, I record sound effects, I go home and I change things. And, be, it's, and then making offers, it's a, it's, it's a lot of homework. No, I, I, I love work. Our line of work requires it because you go home, you look at that, you go to rehearsal, you go, oh, okay, this is this bit. You go home and you write something, draft something up, work till late hours, bring it back in the next morning and rehearsal and say, can we try this? So making offers and trying things. Uh, but primarily it's, I think, absorbing the story and then reinterpreting it in your own way. I think sound designers and composers are attached to projects because of the number one, how good they are using that particular sound and sonic language to tell a story, but also yeah. their, their storytelling technique. Some people are really good, particularly. Um, so the two main types of sound designers, one is a musical theatre sound designer. So you might go into a lovely example, Les Mis, for example, and you have a big orchestra, you have a massive, or Hamilton, you have a massive orchestra, sound effects, you've got all these people rapping and singing. How do you mm. make that all sound good in a massive, massive theatre space? That is really, really tricky. You've got so many different speakers, you need to have achieved peak clarity, to make space for they say making space for example and yeah. the, frequency, the frequency chart you know the vocals are here so you have to duck all the instruments and make sure the instruments don't interfere because there's only so much space you have so that is an art and a science and the other type of sound designer which is the type that i usually am i'm a content-based sound designer so i make effects and i make soundscapes and i make long sustained tones and amongst amongst other things and orchestrations to support a play. And that could be scene change music, that could be how the radio music distorts and fades to something else. Mm. Yeah, that's a day-to-day. I do a lot of homework, uh, but I love it. And I go to rehearsals a lot. Um, yeah, I yeah. just write people, buy and- people chocolate. <laughs> do you do do you ever do like having to go outside for example and record rain and stuff yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fully that's a fully recording also what i do a lot is um i ask directors what their inspiration is and often mm. you, the answers are quite interesting so i've i've been to see i've been to the greenwich observatory because somebody said oh my inspiration was space in the universe and you go in there so yeah i sort of get it i sort of get it i sort of get what you're looking for the vastness of a story that you can't or the vast or the omnipresence or the omniscience of god, a god you know it's just, as, as abstract as that sounds and you can't really quite understand that until you go to this the same space that person was i've seen mm. films i've gone to to art galleries to take modern things like that just looking at the painting even though i'm doing a piece of music because the director said it sounds like that painting and you go but oh, yes okay. and it's part of the story isn't it yeah, yeah. what's well, interesting we talk a lot when i'm in my day-to-day script editing and, and storyline and things like we talk a lot about visual storytelling mm. But I think it's really interesting because there's also sound storytelling as part of it as well. So I know it's just interesting. And people don't often clock it, I think. And mm-hmm. yeah, they don't often clock studies and they don't often clock music until afterwards. They go, oh, that music was really good. You, know, yeah. you, watch some, you watch some amazing films and you may not even pay attention to the soundtrack at all. Yet it does all, it does so much work. 
And that's what's, you know, it's just one passing comment. Oh, the, sound, the music was great. That could have yeah. been months and months of work, you know, minutes <laughs> of budget. And then, and that's what's no. the interesting thing about this line of work is you get a lot of satisfaction from it. And you know that audiences might just go dismiss it because it happens in a second. Yeah. What's the sort of difference between doing that for theatre and doing that for sort of film or TV, etc.? I know you'd also done some media stuff as well with, you know, shorts and films and stuff. Yeah. So with theatre, theatre is more of a live element. There's more interaction. I've got to rehearsals a lot more and I try things. And I have to be in the room quite a lot. And I say being in the room, being in the rehearsal room uh, during the show building process. But I would say for film, I would usually get a final cut, so a picture lock. So things mm. have been placed and I've got maybe some temp music in there, some temporary music or some reference tracks but other film composers in there. But it's locked. Things are very, very solid. And so whatever I write, it's whatever time code or time that I write to, it's going to be fixed, it's going to work. Whereas in theatre, the primary thing is because theatre is live and nebulous and open to every sort of thing happening. Mm. The music you write doesn't tend to be that accurate, but has to be, I would argue, sometimes bigger and more gestural. Because in theatre, you, I ask myself the question in theatre, what can sound and music do that other design languages can't? So what can I do that lighting can't do, that the text can't do, that costuming can't do, that blocking, that movement cannot do? Mm. If there's a sequence where just, you just need music to do storytelling, then it's really quite interesting. You know, you've got a, at this moment here, something exciting happens. Something here, you use how people universally understand music to tell a story. So we, we universally understand a bit of rhythm as oh, something exciting is coming. So using harnessing that understanding putting it into your music. Not to say it doesn't happen in the film, but in the film you get to be more precise. So I can just go exactly at this point, the sixth thing exciting happens and there. In theatre, you have to sometimes, if I write a piece of music that's a minute long and actually split into three pieces of music that just runs on. So I've got layer number one. And then when this thing happens on stage, I have to trigger layer number two. Then time on stage, I trigger layer number three, which, because just, you know, people might, things happen. Things happen on yeah. stage. If just something should happen in film. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. bits and bobs, yeah. They're both... Some, you, you sacrifice accuracy, but you also have a social aspect of it. That's really nice. I think in film, I tend to meet less people. Yeah, I think that tends to happen in posters. Like a lot of the time, it's just like, it's very, it's quite like a soul, soul process. Like, okay, thanks for adding that in. Cheers. It's like a very different way of working. And it tends to be a more like, there's like three stages to film or TV. It's like, you know, got the development of the script phase, then the filming phase, and then post, which is a whole different world, which I don't really know a huge amount about, but like where you would come in, etc. Yeah. Sort of doing post, yeah. maybe 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 planning a little bit. But here's it: the the, pl- the production cycle of film is so long. So in theatre, you mm. can easily you know you you have a three rehearsal process, a three run, and then you will have had a body of work. Mm. So Composer, then I'll have some. So uh, you know, the more projects you do, the more things you have in your portfolio, for example. Whereas in film, the film takes a year, two years to make. Feature takes maybe you know, two and a half, three years. That's a long time to wait for anything, isn't yeah. it? You know, no, by the time smart, that happens, I'm like, there's no portfolio. Yeah. No, it's very true. Very true. Well, let's talk about the sort of the performing of like yes, you know, of keys course. and percussion and stuff. What what's the sort of day to day role of that, and how does that all work when you're doing a show? So, for this, we're just in rehearsals at the moment. It's a lot of pra- again, a lot of homework, a lot of practicing, and they going back to sort of me playing music growing up. It's a lot of I was up this morning drilling. I was uh, late last night just drilling the scales, doing mm. the runs. It's a lot of listening, but I think it's a it's a lot of interaction. Ever your keys, percussion player. It's a lot of just. It's about connecting. It's about connecting with the people on stage that you're playing with. I listen to, there's a musical director who conducts me. So I listen to them. I watch their cues. I listen to the cast. I play, I fit in. I think sometimes in musical theatre, the keys two part is written in such a way that the keys one, usually is also the musical director and the mm. conductor. Musically, they have to be able to, their notes are quite, usually on the beat and quite 
regulate uh, yeah so they can conduct and they can tell you where we are so they're very very metronomed and very metric whereas a key stew player tends to fill in the gaps so we tend to do a bit more riffs a bit more licks a bit more funky bass lines because that's our job because we're not we're not you know our job is just to beef it out a little bit and fill it out so that's sort of yeah and then just finding listening to each new player coming in and seeing what they play so i fit in and making sure that i'm not making too giving enough space for people mm-hmm. yeah it's about interaction and connecting with because we play a lot of music live making sure that we're hitting the right cue points and practicing going home and practice taking the notes going home and practicing again you're going to take a notes and go home, watching a video and practicing again yeah because that must be quite that must be quite hard when you're doing a live performance of a musical in like say playing with the orchestra and the, you know the big musicians because one mistake in that like everyone can notice it so it's like yeah it's quite, quite, it must be quite hard yes <laughs> yes <laughs> And, you know, you, the moment goes by, you can't go back. I think one of the hardest things to learn and then, when you grew up playing music, the first time you ever went to music lesson, the first time you ever went to, say, for example, a competition. You see a lot of people do mm. that. They go, they play and they go, and they, they mess up and they go, I'm going to go back. And like, yeah, there's no, you just have to move on. And I think it's the moving forward bit that's psychologically difficult. So I think innately we want to go back and fix something. Mm. By the time that piece of music's gone, you know, by the time you made, made that mistake in bar five, it's already bar six, it's bar seven, it's bar eight, whoops. The more you think about it, it's bar 20. It's about, they, oh, move on, gone, move on, gone, move on. Just make, how do you make the next thing better? And that's yeah. the cycle, cycle, yeah, the thing you keep thinking about. That's my day-to-day, you know, I come in rehearsal. Uh, the golden rule is if you are 15 minutes early, you're on time, so be on time. Hmm. Uh, do the warm-ups, do field trills, interact with musicians, make sure that I've got everything I need. And yeah, and make sure that the playing's on par. You have to, yeah, just be, be, just do, do, the, do the job, you know, you get the given the notes and just play the notes do it and then find your wiggle room find the way and then find a way to take your playing to a different level but making sure that you're always doing and delivering the very fundamental bit that you need to deliver so that the performance can go on yeah thank you so much for answering all those it's really interesting to hear before i sort of ask about the the show that you're in now and get we can sort of get into that and promote it a little bit but how do you go about getting like a job playing in the sort of orchestra play do you is it similar to like say a performer that's in a musical show do you have to audition to do to get into that or is it sort of like you have a portfolio and people you submit it and people go oh great come and join us here so i my first performing gig was with stomp and that was an open audition and i think yeah and so that was they gave me a piece of music or they gave me a lot of routines that i had to perform it and then my second performing gig was i was a depth md on 60 musical and hmm. through that i met the producer who, and I think I sit in a particular niche where I'm a percussionist and a keys player who has a stage presence. And so, and I haven't performed in that many shows. My understanding is if people want to get into it, there are many ways around it. So primarily what you, what you want to know, what you need to know is that there are people called fixers who work in pit orchestra and it's their job to staff an orchestra, to staff a pit orchestra, staff a pit band. And you just want to get them to see you play. The thing is my entrance into this line of work is not through that it ended up being through the two other shows that i've done which are quite specialist therefore led to specialist. Yeah. for this show is quite a specialist particular thing but if anybody listening wants to get into pit work you want to be able to invite fixers who to watch you play watch you direct watch you conduct and perform yeah um i think self-tapes Mm-hmm. So I'm part of the musical director groups and whenever a drop edition comes up, they go, film yourself playing this, film yourself playing that, film yourself playing Dear Evan Hansen, for example. They want to hear your articulation, they want to hear your expression, they want to hear you lead. Yeah, that's how you get into it, I think. But, the, you know, some people go to train, some people just keep playing. I know a lot of people who've just played, say, in a function band and then got called into depth 
Stepping means you you stepping you know stepping is deputy or you're there for a day with, to cover basically cover somebody and you think oh you covered really well you're a really good player why don't you come back again and come back again and soon you become part of the circuit the circuit I think they call it in the MT world the circuit mm. yeah. People who are known no. on the circuit. No, thank you for thank you for answering. I think it's just useful again for people to listen to sort of understand these weird and non-linear career paths that a lot of us do, especially with sort of your role being a bit nicher than maybe some of the other ones we've done. But again, really interesting because we haven't had someone like yourself on the podcast before. Mm. So it's really good to get that insight. Let's talk about the fantastically great woman who changed the world. Tell us about yeah. the show, where people can see it. It's on tour till like next year and stuff, isn't it? It's Correct. on a U- UK tour. Yes. So Fantastic Great Women Who Changed the World, this is our third outing. It's written by Chris Bush with music by Miranda Cooper. I love the show a lot. It's, I, I keep coming back. So I was part of it in the first run two years ago and then the second run a year ago and then now I'm back here. So we go to Manchester, Tough of Larry Keys, and then there's the rest of the UK tour where we're touring places like Colchester, my understanding is, because actually I'm, yeah, see, I think Coventry, Oxford. I may be saying cities, just saying cities. So there's, there'll be a link, there's a, there's, a link, there's a link to this in the show notes. So if people are interested, they can just click there. Yeah, and please do. I think sometimes it's a tour of oh, the cities. But yeah, it's a show that I think, it's a show, it's a fa- I think it's a show for everybody. It's empowering. The music's fantastic. It's banging. It's funny. It's got a lot of heart in it. It's got, which keeps me coming back. Is that the show? And a lot of people have left feeling really touched by a lot of different elements of the show. And I would say the show is for, yeah, there's something in there for everybody. And it doesn't just do the thing. Because it's based on the children, it's based on the book by Kate Pankhurst. And when the book showcases 10 amazing women through history who have overcome a lot of challenges and made them up. But it's not just about that, because this show, what this show does is what, what can you, what lessons can you take from those women and forge your own path? Because our central protagonist is a girl called Jade. And she is in, and then she's on, yeah, I won't give too much away, but then she encounters these 10 women in different stages and they all give her a lesson for her to take on and hopefully we are able to give these lessons to any audience member that watches it oh i have i have there's so much you can say about this show it's very precious and it it's it's got the night like the museum kind of fun bit where you encounter all these stories and a lot of really great songs and bops but it's also some some tender-hearted moments that will make you really think about how difficult things were and how triumphant a lot these women were and how what you can take on to your life you know and it's not a show for just young people mm-hmm. I think it's a family show because you know when we talk about standing on shoulders I don't think any young person would succeed without the understanding of the older parties around them watching them watch the show mm-hmm. fundamentally so yeah it's a fantastic tender piece that I hope will and know will touch a lot of people and uh, you know earlier in the podcast i mentioned that it's touched a lot of young people have watched it and people still dm me and i still have uh, relationships with some of the people who have seen the show because just because it's done something i think it does does everything for everybody amazing yeah and yeah and isn't then just the thing of like oh yeah look how great these women were it's like okay great take these lessons and now go forth which is important and it's important for every person no matter age no matter gender no matter yeah where you come from how you grew up I think it's an important story to be able to hear no for sure thank you so much Nicola for sort of telling us a bit more about the show there's obviously links there in the show notes and I hope people come along and see you sort of doing your bit as part <laughs> yeah. of the show as well oh yeah there's this bit right. in the middle where I go on stage and drum it's really fun you see it's just so fun it's such mm. a fun show as well there's a lot of laughs 
I enjoy it. And it's just, you know, great, a great, a, a, a bunch of amazing people on stage just doing amazing things and telling amazing stories. It's, mm. um, it's brilliant. It's a banging soundtrack, which you can also find on Spotify. You'll link yeah. that in the show notes as well. People can have a wee listen before, yeah, they, yeah. before they come along. I've got a couple more questions for you. I know we've been mm-hmm. speaking for nearly an hour, so I'm starting to wrap things up. But I wanted to hear how you protect your mental well-being in such a hard industry, especially from what you were saying earlier with a lot of the external pressures that you put on yourself as well. That's a really good question. I don't think people don't often get asked that, so it's a very good question. Yeah, and I think we're very bad at sometimes talking about it in this industry i think for whatever reason creative people don't talk about health and well-being or and it's very much like a culture of i'm going to work and work and work and i'm going to make my masterpiece and i'm a tortured artist and there's a lot of people <laughs> a lot of, there's a big cliche of that a lot of, i think a lot of artistic and creative people fall into that trap so i think it's mm. an, important, an important thing to talk about yes like if you're not what like if you're not in pain then you're not working it's like, like it doesn't have to be like this no for sure i think i protect my mental health two ways i find my community um, and i found my community and they support me and i'm able to find people who are like-minded who have gone through similar things and who support who i can who can be a sounding board but can also be there to hold me mm. so i can hold other people it's important to hold each other and lift each other up so finding your community and find, i've really found it in mind and just having some quiet time I have a lot of quiet, I have a lot of downtime to myself in the sense that I would just plug off, you know, I just go off, 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 nothing, no one, just, yeah, yeah, at some certain point, I have a lot of quiet time to myself in the morning for breakfast, so carving out pockets of time in the day where I'm just by myself in my thoughts and you can entangle those, I think sometimes a lot of decisions or a lot of emotions ride high when a lot of people's thoughts are just tangled and fizzing and not getting untangled mm-hmm. and I think having that time at least for myself personally to unravel them and going so this is this and this and this and that and for me at least for me myself it feels less scary I think a yeah. lot of it is very scary and I just need to make it less scary and being held by people who understand and they're having time to unravel them just makes it slightly less scary I mean tomorrow's gonna be another scary day but you know one day at a time <laughs> No, thank you so much, Nicola, for, for answering that, honestly. Again, it's an important thing to talk about, but also a, a scary thing to, to open up about for some people as well, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and I think it's useful for people to hear. Another question I have is, obviously, you've worked in a variety of roles for a while, but like, what are three things you think people would need to sort of do what you do? Three skills or three things people would need? Three things to do what I do. First one is having a good ear. And mm. this is not about pitch perfectness or things like that. It's just having good ear for things around you that aid understanding how we all hear it. So we all somehow understand that there's a drill outside, Mina. We all understand that as intrusion. It's not just a drill, but it's intrusion and it's intruding on your thoughts. Or we all understand a deep bass tone as evilness. We understand tinnitus as something awful has happened. It's having that universal understanding. It's um, having an ear for how people universally hear things. So we all universally hear some kind of pop music. It's really bright and poppy, you know, or we universally hear, say, a Billy Irish song is very intimate. Why is that? Why Why do you feel like this particular intimate tone? It's just having an ear and making, making sure whatever you hear, you're connecting it with how, how you feel mm. and how other people feel and how we all feel about it. So that's important. The second thing is, I think, people skills. You have to have really good people skills. I think you, there's no point in being really good if people can't work with you. No. And people, you know, and I've seen people who are have more longevity in the career, even though they might not be the best musicians, they are the best people to work with and you have such a jolly good time. And you know that when you work with them, you leave the theatre feeling great. And I think that's fundamentally, and the audience see how much of a good time you're having. And that's fundamentally more important than somebody who can just you know, execute pitch perfectly mm. than are quite difficult to work with. Yeah. 
And the third one I've yet to discover, actually. I don't think, <laughs> yeah, like I think there's, there are many things that I should put it, uh, part of it is just I've been, you know what it is, is I've had really great support. I've had a lot of support in my life, in my childhood, growing up, in my career. I've had great mentors. I have been lucky to be awarded things that can advance my career. I played music growing up. So there are a lot of things, that, a lot of factors that it's just such a positive thing that in my life. And I think support is that. I think just, just admitting it, I've had a lot of support. Mm. No, no, that's such a, a nice answer, though. And I, I like that you're like, oh, I've not discovered it yet. Like, when you're sort of open to the fact, I will discover it eventually. Yeah. But you'll be, you know, I think often if we're asked a question, it's like, we kind of feel like, oh, I need to answer this. But sometimes it's actually quite a courageous thing when you just to say, oh, I don't actually know it yet. And I think we need to all be a bit more like that sometimes if we don't, you know, that, and that's totally, totally fine. But partly because, Jamie, I don't think I'm there yet. I don't think... Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I haven't, I have peaked. Of course so, not. So, you know, come back to me when I've peaked. Maybe it's that. <laughs> but but these are, I did, I did answers. I mean, I also had a lot of support, like, I have to admit it. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I think so it's particular, like, you know, particular circumstance. Yeah. Another thing, you asked me about this phrase from home that I like. Mm, yeah. And the phrase that from home that I take to me a lot is, um, teensy, they lay young war. Okay, so teensy, teensy, they lay young war. Seven, seven characters. Teensy means circumstance. Bailey means geography. Young war means people. So it's a six six words. So if the timing and the geography and the people in your life or circumstances are all aligned, then they create positive circumstances. So yeah. it's like those three cat. It's like somehow in those three particular elements, you need to have really well coordinated in your life for something that you really want to happen. And I have had a few instances where those three elements work out really well. Some instances where those didn't work out really well, but also acknowledging it. Sometimes, yeah, I've had a lot of support as well. I love that. That's a great little phrase and analogy. Yeah. I'll definitely be using that one in the future. Thank yeah. you for sharing. Circumstance, geography, and people. So like, I, you know, I moved to the UK and I think geography really helped. I moved to the UK, particularly London, to pursue a career in the arts. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be as fulfilled. I think a lot of things I'm doing now, I cannot, I cannot possibly do. Very yeah. Well. Let's just recap so make sure I know that. So geography, circumstance, circumstance people, and people. Yeah. I love that. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that one. That's all right. Just get a real job. Obviously, the name of this podcast is just get is just get a real job. We'd all work mm. jobs when we didn't like or you know things we had to do to pay the bills, etc. But what's the worst part time job? Quote real job that you had to do to support yourself as a as an artist. Uh, food tasting. They had to pay me money to taste food and write and write art and like you know just be you know, oh, wow. testing. Yeah. I'll pro. <laughs> that, see, that sounds like to some people that could be a great job, but at the same yeah. time, you probably, probably have to taste stuff that's actually not not good sometimes. I mean, if, if something tastes bad, it tastes bad. Yeah, I suppose. I think I would say my first ever job wasn't particularly great when it was, because it was I was at the desk job and then I used to also design. I mean, see, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I just, it was a long hours because I was working for a company that was based half across the world and I used to work till 10, stay in the office till 10 p.m., 11 p.m. Yeah. So I was designing playlists for hotels and things like that. So it wasn't terrible. It was just long hours. So my working day was 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. But I wouldn't tell anybody. I'd stay in the office and be like, yeah, you know, they go, everybody leave. And like, yeah, I'll just stay for a bit and others be doing my other job. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but some, yeah, I think it will come to me. It will come to me. Sometimes you just, Forget about it. Oh, you're a good story at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to, I used to, when I was in Hong Kong, I used to wait tables and stuff like that to pay for classes and stuff. But yeah, but that wasn't part of the career. 
that was you're, you're, a, you're a grafter though you've done it all to get you've done loads probably i think we're all grafters now right to be honest yeah, yeah, yeah. well we're all graft nicola it's been it's been lovely speaking to you I just have one more question to close yes, with but, and you sort of you, you shared you shared, no it's been a pleasure you shared lots of insightful things and bits of advice throughout this conversation but what to close us off what would your closing advice be to people that want to do what you do finding your tribe finding your mm. tribe find the people that resonate with you your work your heart your community because they can support you and you could and you can support them in turn and that it's about finding people who have ex- an experience that you have they can tell you what they think and where and so you don't feel as alone i think often and i don't know if listeners may or may not agree that the art sometimes can be quite a lonely thing because you know i'm not you know always it's very social it's very it's also quite a lonely kind of thing sometimes mm. And so it's finding people who can organize, you know, a picnic. You all get to know your friends, and you go to a press night. You get to know people there, and you get supported, and you and you and you and you're happy for people who win, and you're happy for people who will make it better for the people who are coming after you. And you can stand on people's shoulders and be someone else's shoulders to stand on. Yeah. So finding your tribe and finding your community is one of the most important things that I think have really, really made a difference. I think when I first started out in theater, I didn't know where the community was, and I sort of slowly found my way in and. They've welcomed me with open arms. That's been really important. Yeah, it's finding the people, finding your tribe. It's because I, I moved here from Hong Kong. I don't have any family here, so it's nice to find a family of mm. to sort of hold. Yeah, to have dinner together, to to hold and be held, is is something that we take we shouldn't take for granted. If that makes any sense, to hold and to be held is something. It's such a privilege. It's such a it's such a joy. No, it's and it's and it's, vi- it's vital. Vital. Yeah. Find people who can do that for you because. Mm-hmm. it's hard to hold yourself you know no for it's sure and it's so important in this industry especially what we we're talking about earlier with mental well-being and things as well i think you need people around you for all sorts of reasons nicola that's a great place to end on but thank you so much for your time and uh, i'll let you get back to your rehearsals as well because i know you, you, you very kindly stepped out to chat to us so i appreciate it that's all good thank you jamie come see the show well there you go that was episode 125 thank you again to nicola for our time a really really good one to kick off the year and great to finally put this one out in the world if you enjoyed what nicola had to say there is links to some of her previous work and her website in the show notes also be sure to check out fantastically great women who changed the world which is currently on tour there's links to that in the show notes as well and yeah as always if you'd enjoyed this podcast today be sure to get in touch let us know it's always nice to hear from our listeners or you can share it on social media or send it to someone who think might enjoy it why not and we also have a patreon if you're interested in for the price of a pint or a cup of coffee supporting this podcast every month then we'd be greatly appreciated all the money we make goes back into making this podcast best it can be i'm also going to share another link to doctors without borders which we put an appeal out for before they have a wide number of teams of people working in various crisis zones including international conflicts to help innocent people that are caught up in them and they do some very vital work and of course there's far too many international conflicts happening in the world right now as i'm sure we're all very aware and it's not good but if you're interested in donating to them then it's a great organization so i've left another link to that in the show notes anyway we'll be back again next week we've got lots of brilliant episodes coming up stay tuned and have a wonderful rest of the week Just get a real job.